0: Welcome to Being the Knot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, we invite a guest to talk with us about their experiences of being black, brown, yellow, red in white spaces. Guess what? This is the final episode of season one. I cannot believe that we made it. And I am looking forward to taking a little break and creating some amazing content for you for season two, which will start again on Sunday, February 7th, the first Sunday in February, of course, in honor of Black History Month. And I just am so excited that I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control and I think I like it. Yes, I'm aware that I am not a singer, but it doesn't mean I don't like to sing. So our guest today is guess who? Yours truly, me, Dr. Stacy. My plan today is to talk with you a little bit about my own experiences as the DOT. The team that works with Being the DOT is amazing. We'll talk a little bit more about them later. But they oftentimes tell me that our listeners want to know more about me and my journey and that the things that they share, I share, tends to get the most traffic or hits or attention. And so this is my attempt to share a little bit about me and my own journey. So here goes nothing. So let's talk a little bit about me and being the dot. So, my, I actually grew up, part of my childhood was in South Carolina in a small town called Hartsville. And the other half of my childhood was in Philadelphia. I was the anti dot in those situations. Everybody that I lived my life around, for the most part, were um, black and brown people. In fact, I am, I know that there are. White people who live in Hartsville, but to this day, I'm not really so sure where they live. And this was actually the schools were not uh, the high school, at least was not uh, desegregated in the way that it is. But at that point, and then in those times in the in the early 70s, uh, the black kids went to school one place, and the white kids went to school um, to elementary school in another place. And so my life was a very very black life. And, you know, maybe a doctor or two here was um, white, but even I, I don't remember even any um, white teachers like there had to be some. But there are none to, that come to mind at this point. And I went to school in South Carolina until I was about till until the fourth grade. I left South Carolina, went to Philadelphia, and went to a parochial school in Philly that was in West Philadelphia, uh, St. Francis de Sales. And the nuns were oftentimes white. In fact, it was abnormal to have um, an African American nun. I remember one Sister Nora, and then um, I think that's what's her name. And then I graduated from that elementary school, and actually ended up being bused to the main line up Philadelphia. It's the Western suburbs and it is predominantly white and it is also affluent. And so that was really the first time that I remember being the dot and really kind of negotiating that and trying to figure that out. Uh, you may remember the interview with Stacy Brooks Alfonso. She talks about some of her experiences in primary school or elementary school and high school. Stacy Brooks and Alfonso and I actually went to high school together. Uh, and so we both had that same experience. And I, I don't, you know, we had, we were in this white space. And, um, I, I, you know, what I remember mostly is hanging out mostly with African American students. We were all bused together from West Philadelphia out to our school in Radnor, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's about a thirty-minute journey, maybe, and um, and it it was a pretty white space. It was one of the first times that I remember, maybe a club for minority affairs and that kind of thing. That was what it was called back then in 1982, 83. And um, and that we congregated in that way. And certainly we all ate lunch together and um, hung out together. But then there were moments in time where we found ourselves in relationship with some of the white girls, because um, so we were all girls at that moment, that we went to um, school with, and so I think there, there was an interesting piece. What I what I don't know is I, I'd be curious to hear if any of my classmates are listening to this, or even maybe some of you have had this experience uh, with high school. How much those relationships extended uh, with some of our white peers extended beyond school? Meaning, were you in and out of each other's homes, or was not that, that not the case? I left um, that high school and went to college at a historically black institution, Norfolk State University. Behold the green and gold. And uh, and so I'm back now. And let me let me just say this. Uh, Even in high school, even though my experience of high school was very white, the rest of my life was very, very um, black. That. Um, we lived in an, a predominantly African American uh, neighborhood. Uh, the faith community that we belonged to um, also was predominantly, or it was African American. Um, that um, maybe some of the doctors and things like that again, that was a part of our lives, was were, were white. But my life as a child was African American, um, with the exception of this high school that was. Very white and very affluent, which, you know, can even be an intersection of two different privileged identities and really kind of managing and negotiating yourself in that. I I, I remember something weird being put in my uh, yearbook, you know how you pass. I don't know if people still do this, that you pass your yearbook around for people to sign and somebody put the N-word or spook or something like that in my yearbook. And that, that's something that remains silent for me. There was another time where um, our school bus, the, the school bus of um, African-American girls and some guys as well, hit someone on their motorcycle. And actually the person, the um, the motorcyclist, end up actually being um ended up dying. And you can imagine a bus full of high school girls just being very traumatized and very emotional, expressively emotional about that traumatization. And what I remember is that we went to school that day. Like, so the seniors were in the back of the bus and we kind of worked our way to the front of the bus um to have everybody be intact. And by the time we got to school, we were intact. Now, what I don't remember from that time was any counseling services being offered, any kind of um, support, any notions that maybe you shouldn't be here today. Or uh, I just remember we went to school that day. We got back on the bus and we drove home. And I I, I think there were times that we were there for each other in that process. But I don't remember anything um, happening outside of us from from the administration of the school To to be a support. And it's one of those ways that black pain feels like it got lost in the midst of maybe the strong black woman syndrome or um, the lack of people being able to see the pain of um, these black and brown girls think I'm going to do an episode about that next sem- next uh, season. Anyway, so I left there, I went to Norfolk State, and it was a bastion of wonderful blackity, black, black, blackness. It was fantastical. And, um, and Norfolk State will always be very dear to me, um, just because of the things that were instilled in, in me. And this was a, a very hyper-black space. Um, and And even in the sense that it really opened up me to other parts of my identity because the black piece was settled and uh, we were able to learn and grow. And when I think about the stories of the college students that I spoke with um this season who uh, who were attending predominantly wide institutions and uh, their sense of feeling uncomfortable and not valued and not attended to and not supported, and that making it difficult to learn, my experience at Norfolk State was directly the opposite that I have felt supported and seen and valued and challenged appropriately and supported appropriately and, and that there were people just road modeling for me what it meant to be an African-American psychologist. I left Norfolk State and went to a small coal mining town here in Pennsylvania. And so I think that there are white spaces where Black people are, and then there are hyper white spaces. And this was probably the first time that I had the experience of being in a hyper white space. And so in Western Pennsylvania, um, about an hour outside of Pittsburgh is where I did my master's degree. And it was white. Woo! Have mercy that there, it was like you were searching for African-American folks with a flashlight. And uh, I had a, a friend there um, that I made, and we became almost best friends, if you will, because we had each other, um, Dr. Cynthia Taylor, and um, and we were knitted together. Like we were tight and we took the journey together and she was a year ahead of me. So at some point um, she left. And I left IUP and went to Penn State, which is also a space where uh, it was pretty white. And so in my doctoral program of about 50 people, I would venture to say that there was somewhere around seven to 10 of us. And I may be being overly generous there who were black and are brown. So, again, a very, very white space space. Uh, when I left um, Penn State, I went to University of Florida for a season just for a year um, and then to University of Michigan University of South Florida, I mean, University of Central Florida University of South Florida and now uh, where I am here in Central Pennsylvania and so it was during the time actually that I was at University of Florida that that was actually the first time that my faith community was a predominantly white one. And so even in the midst of my time with IUP and um, in in Western Pennsylvania um, and my time at Penn State, my faith community continued to be an African-American one. It's interesting for me because one of the things that I am aware of that I do when I find myself planted in a white space our Black space in white space is I find myself looking around for my vote, like looking around for my people, like trying to figure out, even if it's not a person of color, a BIPOC person, I'm looking for a white ally who is going to be someone who would be helpful to me. And so, like I said, in, at UF, it was, it was the first time when I lived in Gainesville that I belonged to a predominantly white church, which is interesting because in my, in my journey, in my faith journey right now, I, I, I belong to a uh, predominantly white uh, faith community as well. And so it was almost like that was a little bit of training for me for today. I have chosen at this, up to this point at least to work at predominantly white institutions. And I I feel like it has been a part of my purpose to do that work, to do the work that I am doing here and to be present for the black and brown students at each of those institutions. And a, a hallmark of my work at any higher ed institution where I have worked has been to be uh, there and available to be a provider for black and Brown students and maybe not the only one, um, but to, to be a huge part of that and for them to help them look for their people in the same way that I look for my people. And when they look for their people, they see me smiling and waving at them, if you will and And so that's been really, really a, um, an important piece of my career where I currently am. I'd oftentimes um, coin myself the campus auntie and and you know, aunties will get in your stuff, but they will encourage you. They will be there for you. They will buy you a book if you need it, or whatever the case may be. and so and so that's been a huge part of how I have lived my life. This is actually the first Thanksgiving. Um, since I have been at my current institution, which is six years, that I've not had students over for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, And that's because of the COVID, of course. So there have been joys. There's been a ton of joys. But there's also been some challenges along the way. And uh, there have been times when people have questioned my role and are uh, my seat at the table or Um, You know, people say, well, you they don't say it like they used to You're affirmative action hire. In fact, I was at the University of Michigan when they were going through the Supreme Court cases for around affirmative action. And what I have come to realize that I'm able to embrace that, yes, there are spaces and places that affirmative actions or programs like it, anti-racist programs have opened the door for me right? But that's all it can do is open the door. It is up to me to perform and to perform at a level that is three times, four times, 10 times as high as my white colleagues in the same situation. And while there was a season uh, where affirmative action initiatives were most prominent, there is a history in this country of other types of affirmative action, whether that be legacy or what we just saw in the news with um, Lori Laughlin giving donations and her husband giving donations and a group of other folks giving donations to a university to make space for their children to be there. Or whatever the case may be, but there are all kinds of ways that, or, or even the type of high school being part of the rating that admissions programs use in order to judge a student's uh, ability or capacity to be successful and to matriculate and graduate at the, at, at the university. And so people get caught up in this notion of affirmative action as it relates to race and ethnicity, But I submit to you that there are all other forms of affirmative action that may not be legally on the books, but that have been happening for years. And that because people of color have not been able to build the type of generational wealth that. White people have been able to build. That you need a little something that's going to open the door and create the type of diversity that you need at these colleges and universities. You know, one of the things that's happening in higher ed right now is that people are talking about the diversity cliff, but I always say, well, not and and not the diversity cliff, demographic cliff, meaning that there are fewer students than there are universities to go around. But I I think that students of color, some students of color are not gonna gonna decrease in the amount of students that are gonna be there. So there are even other places where I have been the dots, whether that be on the board of directors, either nationally or in a local charity in my area, or there are certain friend groups where um, that I belong to that I am the dot, that I am the only person of color in that group, and one of the ways that I sometimes I find. Is that, you know, a quick question about my capacity, or whether I should be there, or whether I'm the cleaning lady or um, or do you live here or or oftentimes people want to know, well, what do you do for a living? Especially when we're on vacation and we're someplace that there's not any African-American folks for miles. People want to talk to you because they are experiencing, it seems they're experiencing dissonance and they want to know and understand kind of what you do for a living and, and that whole thing. Um, because because the bathing suit and the sarong is the great equalizer. It, one of the things that can happen as well that has been interesting for me is that people will sideways question um, your integrity. Like, Are you going to steal something? Like, I'm not stealing anything. I mean, even there was a moment in time where I um, where one of the places that I worked that the secretary was stealing on the university. I mean, she was robbing the university blind. And she hooked me to her story. And she told people that it was me that was stealing and that was not her. And she was taking the fall from me, blah, blah, blah. And people believed that. Now, she was the one who was fired in, in court. But I always wondered what made it possible. For people to believe that I was the thief and she was not, so things like that have happened. And, you know, the, and there's there everyday kind of slights and things that um, that that make um, life difficult or, or or make you make it hard to manage race-based stress. I've been personally grateful that during all of the the civil unrest this summer, that I personally was working from home. And so I did not have to deal with folks in the same way that I would have had I been in the office and face to face for meetings. I remember when um, the Rodney King was... um, It's it's interesting because sometimes I've been absent from some of these significant social historical moments. So I'm thinking about the L.A. civil unrest after the Rodney King verdict. And I just called in sick the next day. I was like, I'm not going. And the next day was a Friday. And then I had the weekend for it to cool off. And then by Monday, I think people were just kind of looking at me. Um, The other one I think about is, um, you know, Michael Moby talked about the day after in his episode about how how these things can kind of. take a life of its own the day after. Um So Rodney King was one of them. I can't remember what the other one that I was going to note, but that, you know, that, that you, oh, 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 in 2016, I was on sick leave when the election happened and Donald Trump was elected. And boy, oh boy, I was grateful to not have to go into the office. And in fact, my husband cooked a big breakfast, and my best friend was here taking care of me. And one or two folks' friends came over, who also were African American. We were able to have breakfast and debrief together, and so. Uh, but those things can be true, and 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 even as a professional speaker on the road, that that's also the case that I can find myself being the dot in really odd, not odd, but far out places where there's not a black or brown person for miles. And I'm feeling like I need to be careful and not turn down the wrong street or whatever the case may be. And, and, and I, I think so, the same is also true, even in this podcast world that I was a part of uh, a podcast, a couple co- podcast collectives where big time ones where they had and. um, Thousands and thousands and thousands of members, but I didn't see any one, maybe two other podcasters who were African American are talking about uh, Black life at all. And so that has been really interesting to find my niche and my people, and I've been able to find both of those things through other podcast collectives um, for for African Americans. So what do I do? Like, how do I manage this? How do I Kind of when I'm the dot, what do I do to cope? That's a question that I oftentimes ask my um, guest daughters. I talked already about finding a place of safety, whether that be in an affinity group or something else. Now, for me, I am fortunate to be a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And that always, no matter where I am, there is going to be some AKAs. You can count on that, that we are an international organization. And so Um, Finding My sorrows has become increasingly important to me and not just for the service, which is a really important part of the work that we do, but the sisterhood has been a lifesaver, especially right now, um, living in rural America. I have been very aware that in the middle of the pandemic and that most of our activities have been virtual since February or March, that it has been Almost 10 months since I've sat in the company of a group of um, these smart brown women. And I miss that tremendously, but it really has highlighted how important that is to me. Oftentimes, I talked about faith community being important. Sometimes a book club can be important, other groups of people and technology can be helpful for that as well. I initially got hooked on to Facebook trying to take the bite out of the loneliness of leadership. I also try to maintain a posture of curiosity when people say things or do things that I experience as hurtful, offensive, and are racist. And so trying to really kind of understand, like, help me understand what was happening. We had an incident here at the house yesterday where where a neighbor kind of came up and, um, was looking for something it seems, and went through our mailbox, and um, and and we have uh, cameras so we could see it all. And so, my question was, so tell me a little bit about what you were doing, um, and to help me understand that, and to try to kind of highlight what's your sense about how you might feel if I came up and went through your mailbox, like like that's not cool. And so that that curiosity thing really kind of opens up a conversation for me. And um, especially when trying to talk about issues of race and racism and anti-racism, because I want to be able to have a good conversation and I want people to think. So the store clerk who I was with myself and my son and his wife, I think she was with us as well. And we were out at the grocery store and the woman assumed that we had food stamps. And now this is a store that I frequent. Um, and I just said to her, "What? what's your sense about what led you to believe that we were paying with food stamps? And there's nothing wrong with food stamps. Let me be clear. But the assumption that that's what we were doing was what was offensive. My grandmother, Ophelia Johnson, we speak her name, worked as a domestic in the town that I talked about earlier in the small town in South Carolina. And she was a woman of great dignity and class. I have an aunt who worked in a major upper echelon department store in the makeup in the cosmetic section. And she was the first one to do that. I have another aunt who integrated the local high school. Those women are my ancestors. We have some general sense of where we are from or where we were stolen from in Africa. And what I have to hold on to and continue to remember that my ancestors are the people who survive the horrific nature or the horrors of the Middle Passage. So those people are in me. And so, yes, I can point to Miss Sophia or Aunt, Aunt Ruth and other people and women in my life who have been pioneers are well before their time and men. But my ancestors did great things. Like I'm going to tell my daddy like that. you You don't know who I come from. Do you know who I am? I'm Ophelia Johnson's grandbaby. And because of that, it helps buoy me to know and understand what I am capable of. And the second part of that is because I believe in a power that is greater than me, God, that that also helps me know and understand one, that I'm living on purpose. Two, that I am where I'm supposed to be and all things are working for my good. And three, there is something greater than me that is at work, even in the midst of all of the impact of being the dot and people acting and doing racist things, whether that be intentional or not, and the impact on me. The other thing that I oftentimes think about is just to pick my battles and just ignore some people. I tell on you, you know, Marcus Burke talked about he sometimes will write a letter and, and let people know his concerns. And so I, I'm inclined to do that as well. So here's the thing. Let's talk some about the podcast. It really has been a wonderful labor of love. People oftentimes ask me what my favorite episode. And, you know, it's like picking between your children, 22 of them, in fact. And uh, plus the live streams that we did on Facebook, there were four of those, I believe. What I will tell you is that I love interviewing the elders. It, it just does my heart so good. And so to be able to interview Hattie Love, the first black graduate from Wharton School of Business, and then Earl Ship um, from Dow Chemical was, was such a joy. And I've also, just to hear from them, to hear their stories, to hear how they survived and even their wisdom is, 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 to me, is just delicious. And I revel in it. When I thought about starting the podcast, it really was, my desire was to, to not be, I'm coming up the rough side of the mountain and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And more, we gonna be all right? Right? And, and and not to ignore the challenges of what it means to be black and brown in America, but more to think some about those challenges and then what the strategies are in order to manage, overcome, and or mitigate some of those challenges. I've also really enjoyed some of the um, panel or group discussions. One of my favorite was uh, happy to be nappy that that was a really good one. And and probably the one of the first ones we did was um, was actually on Facebook. I love being black on Juneteenth. That was a hoot. And and so uh, there have been moments in time that I have felt so. Fortunate to be witnesses of people sharing their stories and their wisdom, and then to offer that to you that that has been a great honor to me uh when I thought about the podcast, it was one of those things where I wanna build- i want to help people build strategy and I'm not feeling alone because oftentimes when you're the dot that you do feel like you are the only one for miles and miles right and so Uh, And so building a community was part of my desire as well. And to help disrupt some of the race-based stress that was happening in the lives of black, that is happening in the lives of black and brown people. What I did not anticipate was a racial reckoning in the country. And that has served to exhaust me, but also to energize me to continue to develop good content, both in my work, as a professional speaker, and I have been very, very busy uh, as as it relates to that, um, but also in this podcast, that it keeps me going, knowing that this content is 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 important and it is timely right now. You may or may not have known, but my initial goal was to start the podcast in August or September. I can't remember what it was. I think it was September. And because of what was happening, um, we ended up starting two months early in July, um, just because we I thought it was so important. In fact, one of my nieces came to me and said, Auntie, you um you you need to go ahead and do this now. It's like people need it now. It's like, okay, okay. You know, a few things that I have learned along the way, some of the quotes that have really resonated for me have been. Um, when, when Earl Ship when I asked him what the role is of wealth in mitigating race and ethnicity, and he said, it doesn't keep the coal out, but it it will provide a little insulation. And that was so poignant to me, um, Barry Ingram, who was an entrepreneur, and who was one of the, um, um, Recent interviews that I did talked about um, when what's the one thing that you would tell white people? Don't make it awkward, is what he says. Um, or Tanya Ingram, in fact, uh, his wife, Dr. Ti, uh, talked some um, in the elections episode about um, that the victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris did not quite feel like the Obama victory because we knew that there was so much work to do. Dr. Drew Lanham is the bird watcher who I interviewed in the midst of the situation um, in Central Park. And he said, if if you are Black and have had an incident, not had an incident of racism come up against you, then you haven't lived long enough. And it reminded me of our grandmother's quote of, just keep on living, baby. Uh, Just keep on getting up in the morning. And, And people can see that as very paranoid. But I think what what the statement does is normalize the experience of what it is to be the dot in our country and, and not make it such a weird thing. It's just a part of life. It's just a part of life. And one of the other places where I was really, really moved was um, I interviewed women, men and children. Um, after the George Floyd murders. And one of the babies said, Kyle, who is age 10, either nine or 10, said, stop killing us for no reason. Like, how do you know? How do you know that? Why do you have to reconcile with that at age nine or 10? And and that has stuck with me Um, ab- about both the trauma and the vicarious trauma that we as a people are living with. Now, the most popular episode when I first started taping <laughs> I would do these interviews for two hours or more and I was loving it because again I was doing my thing I'm talking to people they're telling me their stories and I'm enjoying it and uh Marcus brick was one of those that I talked to for hours and then interviewed him again on the live stream his episode has actually been the most popular episode, The Angry Black Man, followed by Seat at the Table uh, by Stacy Brooks Alfonso. And both of those were episodes that were dropped at the very beginning together, the first day. Now, the episode that has gotten the most attention, you ready? The Republican episode. Lord have mercy, you folks, you guys had a lot to say about that episode, and I, it's funny because I tried to crowdsource some questions when I was going into the interview to try to kind of get myself together about uh, my interview template of what I was going to ask her, and I had promised our our guest daughter that day that whatever I do, I would not dog her, I would not. It was not what she called a hit interview, and I really wanted to amplify her voice more so than anything. But I will tell you, it was the most difficult interview that I did the whole time, that it took a great deal of energy for me to manage myself and my reactions to some of the things that she was saying that I have vehemently disagreed with but I was glad that I did it because it, I felt like it gave me a little bit more understanding of people who I identify with the Republican Party. And you know what? It made me interested to interesting to have a part two conversation with her to see uh what she's thinking now that we are through the election. I need to let you know that it has been my honor to be a part of this podcast. And I know I'm the host, but I don't do it by myself. I have a -a crackerjack team that is really, really helpful to me from editors to um, a consultant to the website person, um, on and on. And so I just want to give them a shout out. I am oftentimes... Humbled by these people who are willing to take the journey with me and do such an outstanding job. I want to encourage you to join us next season. We've already started to develop content and schedule interviews um, from black and brown people who are actually working actively with treating COVID in hospitals. Um, We are planning to talk with somebody about the supervision of white people and how white fragility plays into that. You know, I ask people that one thing question. What's the one thing that you want white people to know to make blah, 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 more inclusive? And we're going to do a compilation episode around that. Also, an episode specifically about dealing with microaggressions. uh, An episode about Becky with the good hair and black women. An episode that, so the relationship between black women and white women. An episode that complements the angry black woman um, on the strong black woman and leadership along with some other folks who have been first in their chosen profession or some other way that they have been first. And really coming to, again, understand all that the ancestors have to give us. So here's the thing. Be sure to catch up on what you haven't been able to hear up to this point, as well as um, stay tuned because we will drop some bonus episodes. We have lots of extra material that we didn't weren't able to include in episodes. So we will be sharing some of that with you, including from uh, Marcus Burke and from the college student episode. And there's a few other ones that uh, things that we want to share with you. So stay tuned for those. And lastly, please join us on February 7th um, when we drop our second season um, of episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, there's so much content out there right now, and I wasn't sure. I thought that this, this topic would be important and salient for people. And as it is that we are about We are at at about 3,000 downloads um, since July. And so I appreciate all that you've done in order to support the podcast. If you want additional information, feel free to visit any of our social media outlets, whether that be Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or the website for the podcast, www.beingthedot.com or Uh, write me at beingthedot at gmail.com. I would love to hear your suggestions about who you want to hear from or what's the most dotted situation that you found yourself in. I'm going to try to get some rest. And so when when we come back, we can come back and we are ready to go and uh, able to be a help and an asset to you in your life. Thank you again for listening. Happy holidays and take care. Sign it off. This is Dr. Stacy. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by David's Delicious Delights.com davidsdeliciousdelights.com, custom-made, personalized cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.